in Gaza, those three pillars of a response to an infectious pandemic like this, not one of them is intact. We're not talking about small holes. We're not talking about uh, manageable defects. We're talking about a complete absence of all of the things that you require to deal with a problem like this. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. My co-host Asa Wynn Stanley is off this week. I hope all our listeners and readers are staying safe and are able to stay inside during this coronavirus pandemic. The first two cases of COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus, have been confirmed in the Gaza Strip, one of the most densely populated places in the world. The Electronic Intifada's Tamara Nassar reported on Sunday that a health ministry official in Gaza announced that the pair had recently returned from Pakistan and were already in quarantine when diagnosed. Both patients were transferred to a field hospital in Gaza's southernmost city, Rafah, where preparations for potential coronavirus cases have been made. All those who came into contact with the patients have been placed in compulsory quarantine. A third Palestinian in the occupied West Bank town of Salfit, who attended the same conference in the Pakistani town of Raiwind near Lahore, also tested positive for the virus. This brings the number of confirmed cases in the occupied West Bank to 57, two in the Gaza Strip and approximately 1,000 in Israel, where one death has been reported. There are currently about 1,200 Palestinians in 18 different quarantine centers in the Gaza Strip. While the West Bank is on lockdown, compounded with the lockdown of the Israeli military occupation, two million Palestinians confined by Israel in Gaza for the last 13 years are facing the crisis amidst a deliberate diminishing of Gaza's health system capacity, while Israel has continued to prohibit vital supplies from entering the territory. Israel bans the import to Gaza of a long list of so-called dual-use items, which it claims may have military purposes. These include medical supplies like glycerin and hydrogen peroxide, which is used as a disinfectant. Israeli rights group Gisha is calling on Israel to suspend its blockade on Gaza and allow all necessary items to enter. We're joined today by by our good friend Dr. Tarek Lubani, an emergency room physician in London, Ontario, who regularly works inside Gaza and is the co-founder of GLIA, which makes 3D-printed stethoscopes and tourniquets in Gaza. GLIA is now turning their attention to making face shields for physicians in Canada. Also with us is Raiden Garapuk, a medical student and the communications director of GLIA. They both join us from quarantine in Ontario. Thank you both for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. And thank you so much, Nora, for having us. Yes, thank you. So Tarek, the last time we had you on the podcast in May 2018, two years ago, uh, you had been shot in the leg by Israeli snipers while you were treating patients and other physicians during the Great March of Return protests. You talked about the dire lack of emergency field medicine supplies due to the Israeli siege and how physicians were forced to improvise. Uh, you're back in Canada now helping Canadian doctors and nurses figure out how to improvise during this pandemic. 
but you still got you've still got your eyes and ears on Gaza, um, even with the quarantine that Gaza's health ministry has set up to the best of their abilities in one of the most densely populated places on the planet and with few basic medications and supplies. What could happen if the virus were to spread um, in, in Gaza? The way I look at it is that dealing with a problem like this consists of three major pillars. There's diagnosis and identification. There's protection of the healthcare workers, the front line, and there's treatment of the patients. Now, in Canada, we have some problems here and there, uh, holes that need to be plugged. And even though all we have is a few problems here and there that need to be plugged and can be plugged, we're still facing down the most major healthcare crisis in Canada easily in a generation, if not in a century. In Gaza, those three pillars of a response to an infectious pandemic like this, not one of them is intact. We're not talking about small holes. We're not talking about uh, manageable defects. We're talking about a complete absence of all of the things that you require to deal with a problem like this. Can you illustrate that a little bit for us? Um, what are your colleagues in Gaza talking about right now? How are they even able to prepare without any of those uh, abilities to prepare? Let's talk about the diagnostic aspect first. Until now, there have been, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but over 3,000 people quarantined and only about 100 people who have been tested. In Canada, the numbers would have been probably the opposite of that. You know, 100 people quarantined and 3,000 people tested or something like that. You really expect that if you're going to fight an infection, you have to see the infection and you see an infection with testing. When we were in Gaza, which was just a few weeks ago, we already were aware of patients who were possible, maybe even probable COVID infections, and we weren't able to test them in a timely fashion. In Canada, we can get these tests within 24 hours now, and there are tests that are coming out that are even faster within four hours. In the Gaza Strip, the tests were taking a minimum of two weeks. So these patients who were identified, these uh, two people who were identified as being COVID positive, they were in quarantine for two weeks waiting for their results because they were probable cases. That means that for those two weeks, people didn't take the precautions that they should have. Yes, you can tell people that they should assume everybody is positive, but when you've got 2,000 people in quarantine, uh, you really can't do that every moment of every day. So we really want to narrow the hay, the haystack and identify the needles, the dangers. Once you're talking also about that situation, let's say if you told me, okay, Tarek, I want you to be very careful when you go and see this patient. With what personal protective equipment? What gowns am I supposed to wear? What gloves? I mean, when I was there, I was, I was uh, barely finding enough gloves to make it through my shift. It was very routine. It is very routine for me when I'm in the emergency in Shifa to wear one glove at a time. And each patient gets one glove and I try my best not to touch the patient with my exposed hand. That's the, the reality of personal protective equipment. N95 masks, I don't think I've ever seen one in the Gaza Strip. I'm sure there's some somewhere, but I've never seen one. And, uh, and things like face shields, also absent. 
you know, is Glia Gaza going to make face shields? Probably, sure. But how does that fix the other personal protective equipment that, that's missing? And then let's say you identify these patients and let's say you have the personal protective equipment that you need. The last pillar is treatment. With what are you treating these patients? The two medications that may have some efficacy, azithromycin and hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine, aren't really available there. And they're not going to be available in the quantities needed anytime soon. So we, we have a problem there. The oxygenation that you can try to get people, well, we don't have enough oxygen concentrators. Ventilators, forget about it. Ventilators are really, really short and are very unlikely to, to be something that can help in this case because to run a ventilator, you have to have a place to put the patient who's in a ventilator. We've done such an amazing job getting the intensive cares in Gaza sorted out with uh, solar power. But once you exit the intensive care because of a surge, where are you supposed to put these patients? What building are you supposed to put them in? And how's that building going to be able to ventilate them? Even as far as I know, that Rafa hospital isn't solar powered. So if they ever end up in a situation where they need to ventilate some of these patients, they're just not going to be able to do it. Any, most countries have problems in one or more of these pillars that are minor. Gaza has disastrous problems in all three of them. Tarek, uh, what about people at home in Gaza um, with you know a, a shortage of basic supplies like hydrogen peroxide? Um, how are people supposed to disinfect their homes and and you know their their supplies? This one's probably not as bad as it seems. This is a virus, so it's not some kind of like zombie super force. It's just a virus. Yes, it's going to kill a lot of people, but that's not exactly how it's going to do it because of a lack of things to clean houses with. Uh, really, realistically, washing with soap and water and scrubbing down floors and doors and all of that stuff with soap and water, warm soap, warm water and soap is going to be sufficient. So I, I think we should recognize the dangers. Yes, we need things like hydrogen peroxide, but hydrogen peroxide largely speaking, is not going to be the main thing that helps us disinfect. That one can easily be worked around in Gaza because Gaza has lots of soap. And even though it's polluted, lots of water that, that they can use uh, for that type of cleaning. Let's, let's talk about GLIA project right now. Um, GLIA is addressing the emergent need for supplies. Doctors need to protect themselves while treating patients, including masks. Uh, are your colleagues in Gaza able to 3D print these supplies yet? Um, how are you working with, with your, uh, your colleagues there? In terms of what Gaza is doing right now, they have the technology to figure out what their needs are and start trying to address them. They are the ones actually who suggested and gave us the first prototypes of the face mask that we're using in Canada now. So clearly that's a product that they're going to go forward with. However, right now it's unclear as of yet where uh, glia Gaza can be the most helpful. Yes, stethoscopes will be a part of it because you don't want to be sharing stethoscopes or using stethoscopes on multiple patients. Yes, face shields will be a part of it. But frankly, right now, I think it's a little bit too early to say 
where we can be the most help. One of the things that we've been doing is trying to develop protocols to use things that are already there and be able to clean them. So for example, in Canada, we receive disposable N95 masks. And even in Canada and the United States and Washington state, people are reusing these masks multiple times over multiple days or weeks. In the Gaza Strip, every mask that enters, we should consider it uh, basically as good as gold. And so if we can give the healthcare providers in Gaza a way in which they can disinfect their N95s, it will reduce the number that they need to bring in. We already know there will be a shortage. We already know they will not be able to enter enough. So giving them ways to extend and expand their use is going to be key, I think, in the next stage. Raiden, you're a medical student working with Tarek uh, at Glia. Give us your assessment right now on the situation inside hospitals in Canada and how you're working with doctors, nurses, and other med students uh, around the world through this project. So right now, with it being at the beginning of this development, there's a lot of prioritization on keeping individuals who are currently outside of the hospitals and working in the healthcare field very healthy and ready to step in if needed. So right now, medical students have very adapted curriculums, very adjusted rotations to ensure that we right now are staying healthy, staying safe, and staying ready. So should the need arise, that would be when medical students would start stepping in in the hospitals, whether that be with screening of potential cases, working in satellite sites with the populations outside the hospital to also do screening and assessments, or actually stepping into the hospital to begin working where we are best needed. So as of right now, it is a more outside approach. We have a lot of medical students that have actually stepped up to start caring for the children of healthcare providers that are working long hours to work on doing grocery runs for different healthcare providers who may not be able to do that right now with their hours and working outside the hospital, staying uh, safe and a little bit more distance until the time comes that we need to be called in and work in the roles that we're best suited for and best able to help. And what lessons are you taking into your future career as a doctor after having worked with Glia and doing this immediate hands-on work, getting supplies into the hands of physicians? Uh, Something with Glia that has actually come up a lot for me personally uh, as a medical student entering the field and also someone who worked with Glia is the concept of disposability. So healthcare in Canada right now, we, we have this idea that a lot of PPE is kind of use once and then throw away. And that might be the best thing for our safety is in case it gets infected, there's this idea that that can become a vector and the PPE itself needs to be disposed of. One of the things GLIA tries to address is the idea of reusability. So if we create these PPE that can be reused safely, that can be sanitized, that can then be, uh, the lifespan can be prolonged, it's going to be lower cost for hospitals, but it's also going to protect the healthcare providers uh, to the same degree, and it's going to help the environment. So this pandemic, as it is now, is really pushing the healthcare system to look towards the future and see what needs to change. And I think Glee is in a great position to bring this option to the table and really both support and challenge the healthcare system to think bigger, think better, but also look to how we protect ourselves, how we create equipment, and how we can get that out to everybody in the long term. 
Tarek, the WHO, the World Health Organization, has been very clear. We need to test everyone and isolate. Um, but states are failing to act quickly enough. Uh, what's your advice to people in Palestine, in North America, in Europe, around the world who are facing this pandemic? And speaking as someone in the United States myself, uh, have governments who are completely incapable of providing or unwilling to provide basic care or relief to people? What's the best thing we can do at this point? There really is a bit of a prisoner's dilemma here, because if a small portion of the population is behaving very selfishly, it will destroy and damage everybody else. And that's one of the things that we see happening, where some people, for example, even in London, Ontario, decided on St. Patrick's Day, which just passed, to go out and party. Those people, they're going to take what they get from those parties, the, the viruses like COVID, uh, and they're going to take them back into their communities, to their families, to their parents, to their friends, and in turn damage the society as a whole, even if they themselves are okay. In terms of how Palestinians can adapt, right now, I think the messaging has to be very clear but the messaging is less go wash your hands and socially isolate because those, if people could do that in Gaza, they would do that. They're piled one atop each other. The messaging really in Gaza has to be braced for impact. We know that this place is a powder keg. We've just watched the spark. If this one doesn't take, the next one will. And eventually the place is going to blow. I think people... In Gaza, people have seen what happened in the West Bank. And they think to themselves, if this is happening in the West Bank, which is less dense, which is in lots of ways richer and more capable than, than Gaza and less, uh, less blockaded, obviously the West Bank is not some kind of Shangri-La. They are still under occupation. They are still blockaded, just not to the same extent as Gaza. And they, the people in Gaza think if this is what's happening to them, then what will happen to us with systems that are even more degraded? There's also a sense that you can declare a ceasefire or you can surrender when it's the Israelis. But you can't declare a ceasefire and you can't surrender when it's a virus. And I think that's the thing that's bothering me and bothering lots of my colleagues the most. Once this goes, once that powder keg blows, there isn't really going to be a stopping it. And uh, I'm not one to appeal to Israeli self-interest here, but I think the Israelis probably, their, their more intelligent planners fully realize that this kind of unfolding, unchecked coronavirus epidemic in Gaza is going to have very serious repercussions in Israel as well. So, which they also can't stop. They also can't surrender. They also can't ask for a ceasefire. And that's why it behooves everybody on all sides of, of Gaza, that's the Israelis, the Palestinians, and the Egyptians, who are the junior partners of, of uh, the occupation, to really join hands and try to make this work for everybody's sake. Finally, uh, Raiden, can you give us some more info uh, for people, maybe physicians, healthcare workers around the world who are 
I'm really interested in in finding out more about glia and and seeing if they can 3d print their own personal protective equipment ppe of course so that is one of kind of glia's goals moving forward is of course being open access these codes are available to everyone and the ability to print this equipment is invaluable in a lot of places not only in canada but throughout the world the best place for either healthcare providers or other parties who are interested in doing this would be to access the website, which is glia.org, so G-L-I-A.org. And from this website, there's a tab that says work with us. And anyone who's interested can not only find here on this website the access to all the codes, but also how to set up a printer, how to get involved, how to reach out to GLIA and figure out, you know, where can I get involved? How can I be a best youth? And also other parties that you can uh, offer to support as well. So that I would say would be the best point to reach out to. We have an incredible team, a wide variety of different people, both in engineering, in medicine and in promotion. And everyone's happy to help and ready to answer any emails if anyone has questions, but I would definitely recommend glia.org for anyone that's interested in learning more and possibly getting involved. Thank you so much. Uh, that's uh, Raiden Garapek and Dr. Tarek Lubani. Thank you so much for all the work that you both do and for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. And thank you so much, Nora, for having us. Yes, thank you. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>